What is going on? Welcome to yet another episode of Not Rocket Science NRS podcast, episode number 44 or 45. Amazing, amazing that this thing is still going strong, 40 plus weeks in doing the damn thing. It's that Rick Ross. Oh. I don't know if he still does that. Does anyone listen to Rick Ross anymore? Does he still go, oh? That was one of the best ad-libs. That was one of the best ad-libs in the history of hip-hop, along with, uh, ha, the Yin Yang Twins. Does anyone still listen to the Yin Yang Twins? Because I sure do. I got them all up in my Spotify. All the hits. Shake it. Let's see. Let's see. Actually, I'm going to open my Spotify right now. Uh, whistle while you twerk. All of the Yin Yang Twins classics. Hold on. Boom. Yin Yang Twins. What do I have? I have Get Low. Come on, son. Get Low. Classic. To the windows, to the walls, to the sweat drip down my bow. That was a Chris Rock skit. Uh, not skit. Stand up bit. Where he just broke down the lyrics of that song back in the day. Salt shaker. Shaker like a salt shaker. Uh, Wait, the whisper song. Classic. Say, ah, yeah, 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 yeah. What happened to those guys? Those were like the original Migos, but like dumber and less of them. (laughs) But yeah, Yin Yang Twins are OGs. They were OGs. They had the most ridiculous MTV Cribs episode, too. Obviously, the house wasn't theirs. They rented it. There's, like, zero furniture in it. The uh, The refrigerator only had Lil John's energy drink. That's, like, a crunk juice. And that was all it had. It was funny how naive we were back then with that stuff. I'm sure, like, older people, if they watched the show, knew that it was a fake house. But when you're 12, things like furniture is just not on your mind. And, uh, man... MTV got you back in the day. MTVs were masters of marketing back in the day. Back in like the late 90s, early 2000s MTV. Probably before that too, but I wasn't watching it. That was before my time. I started watching MTV when it was like TRL was the shit. Carson Daly was blowing up. You know, Backstreet Boys in sync, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, later to be known as X Tina. Um, you know, all of them were on the come up. Eminem. Tom Green had the Bum Bum song. Remember that shit? My bum is on your lips. My bum is on your lips. Anyway, I don't know why I'm saying this. Um, But yeah, 40 episodes in, man. Pretty crazy. 44, I think. At this point, hope you guys are doing well. I'm doing decent. I think I'm starting to just make this a segment on the podcast organically without even trying. But it's like every week... When it comes to New York, there's something new. Something new on uh, the macro level, as Gary V says, I guess. And also on a personal level. And uh, these past couple weeks, for whatever reason, the DEP, which is the New York uh, Department of Environmental Protection, which are it's a branch of the police, keep throwing workers on my street to do work where they rip the road apart and just drill and jackhammer um, into, like, I guess, piping or whatever underneath the the street at, I don't know, 1.30 in the morning. So me and my girlfriend last night are trying to sleep, and there's a fucking jackhammer right outside our window. I think my girlfriend actually tweeted uh, 311. 
which is who you complain to in New York City about it. So I'm gonna play a video just to show you guys how insane this is. Listen to this, this was last night. Yeah, man. So that was my night last night. So I feel really behind today because I slept in late, 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 like 1.30. Um, just because I couldn't sleep. I didn't fall asleep till maybe 4 in the morning last night because of that stupid shit. And the week before, they were doing it also at... They were going a long time. They probably started around 6 o'clock and they went till 3 in the morning. And they also shut the water off, hello, without saying anything. And I had to take a shower at my gym, which is luckily only a few blocks away. But regardless, sucked. I know this is first world problems to the nth degree and all, but it sucks when you come home and like your entire evening's derailed because people are jackhammering outside of your building and they shut your water off without telling you. Kind of ridiculous New York City. So uh, I think every week i'm just like if there's anyone out of the 20 of you listening that has this you know romanticized uh vision of living in new york city in your head i feel like i'm like a dream crusher at this point (laughs) where uh, i hit y'all with that realness you know what i mean because there's a lot of realness living here trust me uh too much realness i think i'm almost over all the realness (laughs) this day and age but uh speaking of new york city realness it's crazy how uh i talk about the amazon thing last week everyone did you know i'm not saying it like i talked about it but i mentioned it on the show about um the protesting and everything and now it comes out this week they backed the f out they backed out amazon will not be coming to long island city and building their second campus. They're pulling out. They're going to pull out and bust on some other city, I guess. Because uh, New York was not worth it. People are mad. And it's funny because like any other issue these days on Twitter, when it comes to issues like Amazon, jobs, tax breaks, it just turns into this political shit show on twitter where everyone is just kind of pandering to their base in their own little echo chamber where you have conservatives like lol of course new york wants to turn down twenty five thousand jobs uh, tax money <laughs> and then other people in new york you know giving them the realness about how infrastructurally you know we can't the city can't support an extra 25,000 new people moving in. And uh, that's what it would be <clears throat> in most cases because it seems like with Amazon, it's kind of like a uh, country with no middle class. Like you have the high, high-paying jobs, like the corporate jobs, and then you have the warehouse jobs. But there's no like, there's not a lot of like 30,000 to 50,000 K jobs at Amazon. That's at least the perception. Um, and I work at a company that's like a mini Amazon. It's an e-commerce delivery company in the food space. And, uh, it's hard really to say, cause there are a lot of warehouse worker jobs that are, you know, closest to the $15 minimum wage. And then the corporate jobs tend to be a little higher paying, but you know, there's, or entry-level marketing jobs and things like that, customer service jobs that are in that kind of 40K range. Um, and then there's also a bunch of jobs I don't even know what people make, like uh, people that do onboard training in HR, um, people who are managers of warehouse workers. I have no idea what those people make salary-wise. So I think it's fair to say that the salaries actually range all over the place, um, and it's not just like warehouse workers and then like corporate people. But what is true is 
I think it's pretty safe to assume that if Amazon came to New York, it would be hard to uh, say that they're not going to bring any more additional people. I think it's a fair assessment to say they're bringing more people. And to me, what jumps out is New York is not ready for more freaking people. The subway gets worse and worse every day. I got to ride that shit every day. It is awful. And I ride it through three boroughs. And uh, once you start getting outside of, like, the main parts of Manhattan, the service just gets crappy in Brooklyn and the Bronx and parts of Queens. It is just not good. Um, I had a doctor's appointment yesterday in Queens, and I have so little faith in the subway that I took the Long Island Railroad there. It was also a really long subway ride, to be fair, but I knew some shit would go wrong, so I took the Long Island Railroad I took the subway to the Long Island Railroad at Penn Station instead of going all the way. So the point being is, if Amazon coming to New York means bringing a lot of new Amazon workers to New York, not for me, man. It's not for me. But but the point is, is that we shouldn't be just in our own little echo chamber chambers tweeting shit out to our own followers that are gonna just agree with us and yes us to death and be like yeah libtards don't understand basic economics 1.0 you know or like making huge generalizations about tax breaks never being a good thing for the economy if you are you know far left and when i was on twitter i actually saw tweets um from paul krugman you know, who's like a New York Times opinionist and author of economics, you know, really a esteemed guy in the economics space. And he broke it down as good as anyone and basically shut the whole debate up. So I'm just going to read his string of tweets real quick because he was he finally just brought some clarity to the situation, which is like, so he says, so Amazon isn't coming to New York. And this is Paul Krugman, Twitter just at Paul Krugman. So Amazon isn't coming to New York. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Let me tell you a secret. Nobody knows. The crude argument for the deal, Amazon would bring jobs, is basically stupid. New York in general and Queens in particular have very low unemployment by historical standards. So any job creation would mainly involve bringing in more people. These additional people would add to the city economy, but also receive salaries. So where's the net gain? Well, they would pay taxes, and NYC has high marginal tax rates, so that's a fairly big deal. They would also expand the already huge pool of skilled labor and strengthen the already huge information spillovers. So the positive externalities of New York's size would grow, but New York also has a huge negative also has huge negative externalities. Traffic congestion costs the average resident of Queens $1,500 a year. I haven't focused or I haven't found a standard estimate of social costs imposed by adding another commuter to New York streets, but they have to be in the thousands, probably tens of thousands of dollars. And there's some social costs to adding more high-paid workers to a housing market that already prices out middle and lower income workers. The right answer is less nimbyism and more housing but that'll take some time so to put it all together the best bet is that amazon would have a significant effect on the welfare of new york residents but whether it's significantly positive or significantly negative is really anyone's guess the question then is whether you should invest a large sum of tax breaks so you can get to roll the dice on positive versus negative externalities doesn't sound like a great policy to me so when i read those series of tweets the other day i was just like yep Yep, you're right, because a lot of, um, like, the tax thing as far as bringing in more New Yorkers that have to pay more taxes, that's a great thing, but right now to me and to most New Yorkers that I talk to, the number one priority is fixing the subway. Fixing the subway is the biggest deal in the state of New York right now because if that subway continues to cripple itself, the entire worth of living in New York would go down significantly. The whole city collapses or strives based on that subway working up to spec on some level. Um, and, you know, I've been coming to New York regularly because I grew up at, right outside of here in New Jersey since probably since like 93-ish. I've been visiting New York 
even when I was a little kid. And uh, I've never felt like the subway was in worse shape, even though I know in the early 90s it was in worse shape by far. Um, the NYPD cleaned up a lot of the crime going on uh, during the Giuliani era. But I'm noticing in the time since I've been kind of like an adult-ish, which is since like the mid-2000s, let's say, I've never noticed such craziness going on in the subway as far as late trains, trains not being on anywhere close to on time, just the dirtiness of the subways, the scariness of people on the subways. There was someone like tweaking the other day on the subway when I was coming home from work, literally just yelling at people to give him money and like getting all up in people's faces. He smelled like shit. Um, it was probably the most aggressive subway interaction I've ever seen when it comes to people begging for money. And it was on a train that was fully packed, uh, stopping and waiting and stopping and waiting at every stop. And it was an express train, so that kind of killed the whole value of being an express train. And, uh, yeah, overall, just the experience was terrible. So I get that more tax money can go to this thing or the cause I guess of fixing this thing but if you're bringing in even more people and maxing out the trains even more in terms of crowdedness because go to go on a 4-5 train in New York at 5.30pm on a weekday and then imagine 25,000 more people coming in potentially having to ride that train because that train goes to Grand Central, which is a central hub for people who commute to Long Island City, who take the 7 train. And the 7 and the 4, 5, 6 are like kind of conjoined together. They're right next to each other um, in the Grand Central Terminal. And just go to Grand Central at 5.30 on a Wednesday and see what that's like, too. Uh, imagining the biggest company in the world there as well, it just doesn't make sense, man. Amazon's a big deal, but in New York, it's not that big of a deal. I'm sorry. I am sorry. It's just not. Someone else can have it. Give it to Newark. I want to see Newark succeed as a jersey in that I am. Um, I just don't think infrastructurally it's there, and I don't think the tax dollars that the city will get is going to be enough to fix the subway with all the extra additional people that are brought in. But honestly, I'm just bro-sciencing all this shit out right now. Um, listen to what Paul Krugman says. He's way more skilled when it comes to economics than I am and what his overall point is which is like having to give Amazon billions of dollars to see if there is a net positive and let's even say the odds are stacked in the favor of Amazon that it will create a net positive to the city if it's like a 70% chance you're still spending billions of dollars of something that can have a 30% chance of like disaster so spending billions of dollars on 30% chance of disaster to me just is not worth it. Um, and that's kind of how I look at it. It could be good. I'm not saying it can't be good. It, there, it could be good, but I don't think it's a guarantee to be good as someone that lives here on a day-to-day. -day. And in terms of the gentrification argument or whatever that I keep hearing, which is a stupid one, like Long Island City is already changing itself up big time. There's already been for about five to six years now a massive investment in real estate in Long Island City. Long Island City's good, whether Amazon comes or not. People are going to be moving there in droves regardless, based on the cost of living in Manhattan alone and also the investment in uh, property rental from real estate conglomerates that are opening new buildings on pretty much a yearly basis there anyway. You know, I worked in Long Island City for a year, and uh, it is on the come up whether Amazon's there or not. It does not matter. And I think if it kind of comes up slower, it might be long-term better um, than having this mass wave of... Amazon workers moving there or whatever, if that were to happen, you know, in 2020 or 2021 or 2022 or whatever. So, yeah, that's my take on Amazon. My take is basically in agreement with this guy. I thought he did an awesome job just nailing the issue in six tweets. And I want to cover it because it uh, affects me on a personal level in some ways. Plus, the company I work for 
is you can argue a competitor of Amazon in a certain field. Um, but also I work with another company on the side we have a deal with, and they work directly with Amazon. So it's this funny web how, like, I kind of work with Amazon and I work against Amazon on some level day to day, which is pretty funny. But uh, I use Amazon all the time. You know, I'm not trying to shit on Amazon here. I'm just trying to give some perspective of someone that actually lives in the city and commutes day to day, the amount of headache and stress it'll bring and whether or not it's worth uh, those tax dollars because those tax dollars don't necessarily mean much if it's all the other shit is also being brought into the equation. Um, that's just how I see it. I don't know. Feel free to disagree. Hit us up at notrocketscienceshow at gmail.com for any comments where you just want to tear my opinion up to shreds. It is all good. Todo bueno. Um, so today, now that we got that out of the way, wow, that was already 20 minutes. Jeez. I want to bring up a topic that I've been focusing on on the side from an investment standpoint and really just a curiosity standpoint in general uh, for a while now, which is digital marketing and advertising, but digital marketing and advertising for the emerging marijuana and CBD industry because I think it's a really interesting time right now when it comes to the space it's still in the early days, but it's like starting to get its first form of maturity on some level. And it's also in this really interesting kind of uh, gray space between legal and illegal. And there's all these constraints on it um, from a rule standpoint on what you can do versus what you can't do and how these... Um, how these companies are trying to get around that and come up with some really creative ways to get around these <clears throat> marketing restrictions propped up to them by the government, which, by the way, that's only to not let these companies influence young people by just making them seem cool. Although, when it comes to the tobacco space, that still happens all the time. Like, look at Jewel Pods, for example. Um but still, I think it's a really interesting space. I think there's 10 years from now, it's going to be extremely different than it is right now. I think what you're looking at in the marijuana industry from a marketing standpoint, marketing maturity standpoint, also just the industry itself, e-commerce-wise, etc., I think we're kind of in this place where social media and online content distribution was let's say 2006 ish um with youtube just taking off and becoming a thing back then and uh social media still kind of finding its wheels and not quite being a place where companies are looking at um, for their own marketing and advertising dollars yet. I mean, there's Google AdWords that was just starting to gain some traction on the search side of things, but, you know, Facebook was still in its early-ish phases, MySpace. Artists were organically marketing themselves on MySpace, but it wasn't like, it wasn't what it is now with, you know, Facebook advertising and things like that. I think that's where we are in marijuana. I think the groundwork is just starting to be laid. I think there's additional uh, hiccups that are going to happen along the way because of government regulation and things like that. But I think when it comes to analyzing markets, I like to kind of take principles that are established in other fields and then applying them to particular situations for investment opportunity. And, uh, I think from a marketing perspective, over the next five years or so, you're going to see some of the most creative advertising and organic marketing done by uh, marijuana companies, CBD companies, things like that. Eventually, once they start hiring specialized marketing firms to help them with their brand, because... In art in general, so if you go to art school, for example, or if you go even to graphic design school to learn branding, when you're in class, what will often happen, let's say, I don't know, let's say logo design, just just as an um, example, 
if you were to take a logo design class at a graphic design institute, you will often in your earlier classes have design exercises and challenges that are totally restrictive, meaning there's going to be a lot of rules about what you cannot do for your project or your assignment. And that's the same thing with music. When I took music production class, my teacher would be like, you have to make this kind of synthesizer or this kind of beat, but you can't do X, Y, Z, no effects, no blah, 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 blah. And what that's doing is that's making you just test the limits on what you can do with what you have. And we're humans, to me, just naturally um, work within constraints and thrive when they have to. But if they don't have to, they're going to play with all the shiny new toys. You know, we all have shiny object syndrome to some degree. And that's just going to happen. And you might get a great result regardless of that extra um, focus that you have to put on whatever you're working on when you have these constraints. It might not matter, but... I think industry-wide, when it comes to advertising, I think the space that is going to be most interesting is the marijuana space because of the extra rules and bullshit that the government is going to hit these companies with. Um, And they're just going to be forced to be more scrappy. And, you know, that's where that natural market disruption and ingenuity really kind of comes out and shines so it'd be interesting to track and the way i like to do it is just going on uh, instagram and following certain accounts that are already kind of trying to become influencers in the in the digital marketing space for the weed niche um a lot of them are canadian accounts so there's one that i follow called adcan which is a d c a n n and they are uh, they're out of Canada. Let me go. Let me bring them up real quick. Yeah, Ad Cannabis. So their yeah, their username is Ad Cannabis. Pretty straightforward. Um, they are a show, news and media website showcasing creative advertising and marketing in the cannabis industry. So they basically give you tips and just historical facts on cannabis industry and quotes from players in the space. And why I'm bringing them up specifically is like right now, influencer weed marketing accounts are just starting. We're in that early age of where influencer accounts are going to happen. These guys right now have 1,500 followers, Um, but they had a huge spike based on getting uh, shout outs and follows from, from big, big influencers. So right now, this is the time where this is all starting to happen. These mega marketing accounts in the weed space are just starting to be formulated. I'm sure there's some that have a lot more, um, but this is just an example where they're basically calling themselves a news media website, but they're really just a marijuana industry digital marketing curation account, essentially. But their growth is starting to take off a little bit and... All they do is curate. They don't even have a product. If you take some of the biggest players in the industry, like Charlotte's Web CBD, which is the CBD that I take, and they're a real company. Um, It's based off this little girl that had epilepsy. So I think the parents or something started feeding them her CBD, and uh, she stopped having seizures. And they are a massive player with hundreds of millions of dollars invested in them. And they're out of Boulder, Colorado. And they only have 49.1 thousand followers. And they're likely going to exceed over $100 million in revenue this year. And there are people that are forecasting them to become potentially, you never know, the Coca-Cola of CBD. Now that's a stretch in my opinion because I think CBD, the biggest players will be the conglomerate companies that are already in cahoots with the government but if you take a company like charlotte's web i do think they have the potential to be a publicly traded version of like newman's own 
So when you go to Whole Foods or any supermarket, when it comes to like the borderline healthiest stuff that's like private brand, there's always Newman's Own, right? The salsa, the lemonade, the, the pink lemonade, the juice, whatever. I think Charlotte's Web can be like the top independent player in the CBD space. And they, because they are so early in the game compared to other CBD competitors, they've been cultivating for a long time and they got investment backed like years and years ago at this point. And they only have 49,000 followers on Instagram. And you might be looking at the biggest independent player in the game. Potentially. This is all potentially. I'm just saying the point is, is that when it comes to social media, and Instagram marketing and advertising, there's so much opportunity because there's so little traction right now. I think the best marketers are really like the OG kind of like uh, weed companies that were doing it kind of illegally or doing it in California. Um, like, uh, what's his name? The guy who who's on Taylor Gang with Wiz Khalifa. What's his name? What's his name? Oh, Burner. Burner. Jesus Christ. How did I forget that? I am a... Morano, I am a Morano, but I think um, the older companies, you know, like Raw Papers, High Times, people that have just been involved in the pot smoking part of weed have done a great job marketing on social. And when it comes to the legalized products, the CBDs, the things that, you know, investment firms look at as marketplaces have a lot to learn from those those OG companies that have been doing it for a long time. But I don't think they can take those exact same strategies and apply them because it's a new space. The branding's different. The voice and tone should be different. The overall sentiment should be different. You know, the packaging shouldn't look like a rolling paper or be green all the time. Um, there's a lot of... Uh, principles when it comes to color theory and you know it's just time to mature the space a little and create a brand based on the principles that other industries use to create a brand you know using using color theory and mood and like a bank why are all bank logos usually blue well blue ensures trust and security security historically so that's why you have you know bank of america is blue and red and white obviously america too but also the blue helps with that chase bank blue Citibank, blue. American Express, blue. Visa, blue. PayPal, blue. ING Bank, blue. Deutsche Bank, blue. Union Bank, blue. And red. So the point is, is the reason why all these banks tend to be blue is because that color has been validated as something that ensures trust. But in the early days, like imagine the idea of a bank, if that was a brand new concept that was just legalized, you would think most banks would be green logo because green means money. And there are banks with green logos for sure. Um, but the more popular color seems to be blue. And I think that's because what the bank means as an institution evolved and the branding tied to it also needed to evolve. And that's why you have all this blue because blue ensures trust, security, etc. Always has, you know, it's always been tied to that forever. Um, and I'm starting to see on social media, like AdCan, that account I just talked about starting to make little like Instagram stories showing this stuff for, weed advertisers so i think it's a really interesting space i think it's a, if you're a graphic designer that is in college right now trying to get their degree fucking move to denver colorado and get in this game asap um you know I'm, i have i live with somebody i've been kind of entrenched in new york for a while so like i i don't have the ability to just get up and move but i think networking in this space is so key right now because you're going to have your major players emerge. I mean, people have talked about this. You know, Gary Vee's already done tons of videos about this, so I'm not going to dive too deep into it. But, like, those weed meetups, there's going to be major, you know, Mark Zuckerberg-ish type players, maybe not at that level, of course, but just as an example, um, emerging. Or you might have the uh, weed equivalent to what 
we all know now as the PayPal Mafia. Do you guys know about the PayPal Mafia? I don't know. I feel like most, you know, businessy types always bring it up. But the PayPal Mafia is basically the network of mega gajillionaires and entrepreneurs from that Silicon Valley world that uh, all worked at PayPal in the early days of PayPal. Maybe seed stage, second stage, third stage startup. Uh, you have everyone from Peter Till, who wrote Zero to One, uh, early, early, early investor of Facebook, you know, advised for Trump and got a lot of shade from Silicon Valley. You had Elon Musk, who actually was a competitor early, I think, of PayPal, and they eventually just merged to become one uh, one company. He was originally a competitor of Peter Till. But now he's Elon Musk doing his Elon Musk shit. Reed Hoffman, who was a co-founder at LinkedIn, um, has an awesome, awesome, awesome podcast if you're into business and startups and entrepreneurship called uh, Masters of Scale. He's just one of my favorite business podcasts. And he's one of the few real deal entrepreneurs that were out there, you know, in Silicon Valley back in the dizzy who has a personality that really translates well to a podcast. Most of these guys, I'm going to be fucking real with you guys, too stiff, too dry, too boring for me to listen to on a weekly basis, episode to episode, and be a loyal listener. That shit just gets really boring really quick just talking about product management and scaling and blah, 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 blah. I like the subject matter. I'm fascinated by it. I'm always curious by it. But... If you don't add some juice to the conversation, that shit gets boring real quick. So, um, shout outs to Reed Hoffman for providing some flavor in your ear when it comes to being a guy that, you know, walked the walk and now he can also talk the talk and it's actually pretty, a pretty good listen. So check that out. Um, but also when it comes to the PayPal mafia, you also had co-founders of YouTube, the co-founders of Yelp. Like lots and lots of big deal guys. You had COO of Square. Um, I think Keith Raboy would be how you say it. I don't know. I might be mispronouncing his name. Honestly, he's one of the guys I don't know offhand off the top of my head. But uh, there were a lot of big, big, big deal guys. You know, YouTube, Yelp, LinkedIn, Tesla. All came out of PayPal. You can argue Facebook because I doubt Facebook would be what they are now without Peter Thiel's money <laughs> early on. So the point is when it comes to the marijuana industry, you know, it's an open field right now. And there will be a network like PayPal's that will, you know, it might not be the same level um, at the same scale, but it'll be some kind of network like that emerging out of this new industry over the next 10 years. So I think going to events and networking is super important to kind of get a pulse for the space. And ultimately, what's up? Um, I know I'm, I was originally talking about this from just like a marketing and advertising standpoint because I think it's a super interesting space because of the constraints. But, you know, segueing into more of a general conversation about it, whatever, whatever. I'm rambling in my bedroom and I take the conversation wherever it goes, motherfucker. So, yeah, that's how I do. But uh, but to swing it back to marketing, I think uh, there's some really interesting shit going on with virtual reality and augmented reality and how... I read an article a long time about this. I don't remember exactly what brand's doing it, but I know there's some... I think CBD brand where they're creating almost like a Pokemon Go experience where their branding is pretty basic and meh because it can't appeal to kids legally right now um, based on the restrictions put on it. But if you download, I think, like an app or something and you uh, put your phone on the product, all this like crazy Snapchatty animation shit goes on and... It's like you, there's still creative ways to get past the system and market the product in the traditional way that's been verified to work, you know, decade after decade, parallel industry after parallel industry. And you're going to start to see a lot of AR-ish types of experience and all kinds of craziness when it comes to advertising these products. 
along with, I think, just some crafty old school design and copy. But one thing I really would like to see from the industry is the lack of using green in all your branding as a crutch. Start exploring other colors, other concepts, and really start treating, you know, niching down. Niches and riches, as they say. Where if you're a CBD company and your focus is like athlete performance recovery, you know, market your shit like Gatorade. Shoot a commercial with some basketball player with some fucking crazy Hudson Mohawk trap song going on in the background with horns and trumpets and shit. And uh, then they take, you know, their droplets of CBD and just run it online only. You can't make commercials with this stuff, obviously, but that doesn't mean you can have branding on your website or say screw it. Get a ghost Instagram page account that's a fan account for your product and have them release it and then have you just, you know, maybe like share it on your story, um, get smart with your hashtag space and try to dominate the explore space, the explore pages on Instagram. You know, you just have to get a little stealth with this shit. So I really am curious to see how these companies get stealth with their advertising over the next few years. Um, that's going to be really fascinating to me because right now we're still at step one. If you were to go and hashtag CBD and Instagram right now and look at the top posts, first of all, a lot of them don't get that many likes at all. Second of all, we're still in this phase right now of like education where a lot of these posts are just explaining what the benefits to CBD are and uh, where they come from. And uh, there's still, you know, a podcast just the other day where I think Joe Rogan had a debate-style podcast where they had uh, Dr. Michael Hart and Alex Berenson where they debated the positives and negatives of marijuana. I didn't think it was a great podcast, to be honest. I stopped listening after 20 minutes. Um, it's kind of a little bit of a shit show, but, you know, there's still these debates going on the debates of the merits of THC. I think most people are starting to, based on the medical studies that have been conducted, see at least some medical benefit in CBD. So the next question is, is there any in THC? Because THC has been stigmatized for so long and illegal by the government. Therefore, the government wasn't going to sink any funding into doing THC-based studies um, on medical benefits, obviously. You know, that's a clash in priorities and interests so now i think the next phase is to figure out if there is any tangible medical benefit there but point being is we're still in this phase we're trying to educate people that this stuff actually can work in uh, a way that benefits you or in cbd's case not get you high um so i think that's going to continue for a little bit longer but then you know it's fucking wide open for branding on any level any message you're trying to convey And it's about just niching down and diversifying um, the space and having your message be contextual to what you're niching down to. And picking a niche that, uh, you know, people care about, like athlete performance. People are going to keep playing sports. They're going to keep getting injuries because of stress on their joints. And uh, they're always going to be a need for that magic thing that helps them with recovery. If you look at the fitness space... It's all about that. I mean, the fitness space has this shit nailed down. I was reading a book recently about fitness profits in the fitness industry and how you craft your entire sales funnel from warming up your customers to giving them add-on offers and bundle packages and uh, squeeze page messaging versus, you know, sales letter messaging and... uh, really kind of like picking your niche for a market that's most likely to digitally purchase your products, not for a market that's more likely to uh, go to a local store to buy their products. And, you know, that the sales conversion funnel um, flow, user flow, in the fitness industry is kind of nailed down, all that Russell Brunson click funnel shit. Um, But with CBD, you know, it hasn't quite been as established yet, but... 
I think the potential from a marketing standpoint is wide open in that space. Um, but the product has to deliver. And I think right now it's hard to differentiate yourself as being like a better product than the others, which is why it doesn't really work. Plus there's just not a lot of content right now in these spaces. There's not a lot of podcasts. There's not a lot of vlogs. There's not a lot of, uh, blogs that are really being built by the makers themselves. Um, I just think the content marketing space is wide open, and I think that shit is going to get swallowed up over the next 10 years big time. Um, and I think the space 10 years from now is going to look a lot different than it is right now. So I'm curious. I want to get this podcast out now just because, like, 10 years from now, I want to go back and listen to this shit and see, like, see how this all mapped out, um, see who the big players are see what companies emerge you know i'm investing now i'm starting to in this space and i want to you know 10 years from now in hindsight let's see you know does charlotte's web become the next newman's own lemonade for cbd oil or not uh or does it become the next coca-cola or does it become irrelevant because of xyz reason um gonna be interesting but uh, i just wanted to talk a little bit today about the potential in this space, some of the where we are right now when it comes to advertising for CBD and weed-based companies now in this new sort of legal age. Uh, I know New York City kind of rolled back on all that stuff and made selling CBD products illegal in the city, but that's just New York being New York. New York is overly aggressive with this shit and conservative for such a you know progressive quote-unquote city um you know they they were the last state to legalize mixed martial arts fighting by like seven or eight years for crying out loud something like that and it's all due to corruption you know they're corrupt the new york politicians you know are basically uh union bitches more or less and this is why they're so slow to react with things and why they do weird stuff that kind of goes against the trend a bit from a progressiveness standpoint even though they have a lot of progressive people in their city um but anyway there's no stopping this shit it's happening uh, if you're a marketer or an advertiser and you're not stuck to a specific, a specific area in the country, you know, getting out to Denver or California and getting, you know, mixed up in this space could be a dope career move, really. Um, I'm thinking about doing it even though I'm not a marketer per se, so I don't know. But uh, I just wanted to bring that up today, talk to you guys a little bit about this. It's been something that's been on my mind for a while um, even just opening up my own product design, branding design, like shop for this stuff on the side has been something that's been kind of pinging around in my head. I don't know. I feel like I need though to network a little before I do that, but I don't know what you guys think. What do you guys think of the emerging weed space? Hit us up, not rocket science show at gmail.com or on Insta, which I'm probably most active on. You can hit us up at NRS underscore show or hit us up on Twitter at NRS underscore show. Just for full disclosure, it is not just myself and I'm saying we to lie to you to make this thing seem bigger than it is. There is another person that sometimes posts on Twitter or Instagram. It is a two-person team, not a one-person team, so I feel okay saying we. Oh, there's a good chance I will be the one responding. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, let us know what you guys think of when it comes to digital marketing and advertising of the legalized marijuana and CBD space. And let me know if I missed anything. I'm sure I've missed a shitload. Um, At the end of the day, you know, I'm a fan of weed. I don't smoke weed that much anymore, but I had a stoner phase in college my best friend smokes all the time. I've been all up in the ciphers. I smoked weed with Woody Harrelson for crying out loud back in the day where uh, I went to a party where he was the uh, director of this new show that was on Broadway and or it might have been off Broadway technically. 
and I went to the premiere, and there was an after party on a rooftop bar in Midtown, and uh, yeah, I wound up, my friend brought weed, uh, Woody Harrelson probably smoked 25 joints that evening, and uh, one of them had was with us, uh, we got a big cypher going, him and his friends, his like old school, old school friends from back in the day, who all look like characters from Woody Harrelson movies pretty much, um, including his brother who looks like him with long hair. Uh, yeah, we all smoked in a little cypher, and then me and Woody Harrelson were stoned out of our minds watching the 2012 Olympics together. We were watching diving. I remember that shit. Synchronized diving. So I was high out of my mind, just smoked with Woody Harrelson, sitting there, me and Woody Harrelson, watching synchronized diving at his own party. That shows you, you know, I ain't one of these startup posers talking about the weed space even though I was never up in it. I've smoked my fair share of danky dank and uh, even though I smoke less of it now I'm still an enthusiast and I wanted to just give my take on where I think the advertising space is going for this stuff that you know I've indulged in fairly frequently over the years so it is what it is. That's the show today, guys. Hit us up. Let us know your thoughts. And have a good one. All right. Later. Peace. Peace.